Welcome back to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach, and this is our first in-person interview. We're excited to do it. Um, Brandon, unfortunately, is still in Ohio, and right now he's actually still on vacation, so he's missing out on this one, but be sure to check in in the future. I'm sure we'll get him out to Michigan at some point. We'll do an in-person one with both of us. But today, we're here with Dr. Eric Fretz. He is a University of Michigan professor and teaches plenty of classes, does lots of um, volunteer work, has a history in the military, and we're excited to have you on today. Awesome. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, and I'm happy to get to know you a little bit and talk. Um, I've heard a little bit of you on other podcasts and heard about your, your ideas of virtuous cults and tribes, and it's been really interesting to me. Cool. So I'm excited to get into that later, but before we do that, why don't you uh, tell people a little bit about yourself? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so I am a faculty member at University of Michigan. Uh, adjunct faculty would be, uh, they call it a lecture, but it would be adjunct, adjunct faculty, teaching faculty for uh, for all intents and purposes. So I don't do research. I don't have a lab. I just be, I'm hired basically to just teach good classes. And according to my students, they seem to like them, so I think I'm doing that pretty well. Um, and I really enjoy it. Um, I, you know, I have, most of my degrees are in education and psychology, and so I was able to have a very long arc through academia with multiple degrees across multiple institutions. It really gave me a very pro-student orientation. So I, I try to design the classes I always wish I would have had, right? Um, and that seems to be working pretty well so far. I do a lot of stuff in entrepreneurship. I teach the entrepreneurship minor, um, the core course for that, and. Um, teach you some grad classes in entrepreneurship uh, through the Center for Entrepreneurship. And then occasionally, although I don't have much time for them anymore, I used to teach a freshman seminar and a senior seminar, um, Psych 356, um, Education 606 in the School of Education. So kind of all over the place, but really interesting, kind of fun. Um, and um, that's sort of my main gig at U of M. And then informally, I serve as a faculty mentor for the student veteran community on campus. Um, I do a lot of work with them. And uh, then I do a number of volunteer roles in a more official capacity with the County Veterans Treatment Court. So I direct the mentor program there. And then uh, for the state, I'm the chair of uh, VCAT 9, Veterans Community Action Team 9, that serves this county and five surrounding counties and assists with everyone who's helping veterans. Because it helps connect them, uh, get them better informed and better resourced and solve the really thorny questions that can't be solved by maybe an individual um, resource. Um, and I've started a 501c3 to support that effort, and I started a 501c3 to support the court effort. So there's two small charity LLCs that I um, founded and run. And uh, and then there's two small uh, medical clinic businesses that I run with my wife. Um, and those are that's kind of the bulk of it. Oh, and I'm also, at the federal level, I'm a GS-15 director of the selective service system for the state of Michigan. So I have a weird uh, federal job that's, uh, and it turns out only to be a part-time federal job. But uh, it's kind of neat because I work for a guy who works for the president, you know, and we don't have a draft right now, so it's pretty chill. But if there ever were a draft, my life would become inordinately exciting in very short order. So, so yeah, I like to do a lot of different things. Since I retired from the military, I like to stay busy. Um, and so yeah, a lot of volunteer work and then, um, you know, a decent amount of socializing. And we talked about earlier this... Um, virtuous cults or just in general I like I like building social groups um, both just for the group's sort of fun and amusement if it tends to be more a social group or for the explicit purposes of like self-improvement and everybody reaching collective goals things like that so that's a very big thing for me most people know me as 
I think most people would describe me as sort of hypersocial, right? Like just very, very busy all the time and always wanting to get together and do stuff with people. Because I just feel like life is too short. I think my last deployment to Iraq really taught me like nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. So, you know, make, make today a good day. And I understand that's basically a bumper sticker. But it's also like you you either really believe that or you don't. I've just, I meet all kinds of people and I'm like, yep, they're, they're living their life and that's fine, right? But they are not living, they, they have not really embraced that concept. And I do, when I meet people who've embraced that concept, I can tell them right away. I'm just like, okay, it's my people, right? Like, let's do something fun today. You know, get something good going, help some other people out. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that, that idea, it fascinates me <clears> because <throat> I'm, so I'm extremely introverted. Um, very much so just energy drains when I'm with people for too long. And, but even I recognize that, that fact that working in that group, that, that tribe or cult that it helps and it, it lets you do things that you wouldn't do otherwise, or you wouldn't hold yourself accountable for otherwise. For sure. And so that community elements, um, that's one of the reasons we started the podcast is to help people have these kinds of conversations. Um, a lot of the stuff we talk about is sensitive and, and more touchy, um, but important. So we talk about religion, we talk about politics and culture, and they're all super important topics to cover, but you don't want to talk about it, um, at least on an individual level. But if you have this community around which you can do so judgment-free, then the hope is to encourage more of those conversations. Right. Or even if it's not judgment-free, just the fact that you don't yeah. feel like you're alone voice, right? That if you, it's much easier to be the second person to stand up to be seen for something, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that makes it, and then if you've already, there's that hilarious video of, um, it's somebody at a concert and it's this one guy who jumps up and just starts dancing frenetically to the music and he's going for 60, 90, 120 seconds just by himself and nothing's going on. And, and then one other person comes and joins. And within 30 seconds of that one other person joining, two other people join. And within 10 seconds of the two other people, five people join. And w within another 20 seconds, you've got 50 people all just joyously going bananas, just jumping around. And it, that, that to me kind of comes to mind as this example of you know, when you set one person in motion and then they get that second one as the leisure. And then all of a sudden, everybody sort of realizes, okay, it's okay. I can join this, right? Yeah. Right. So. Right. And I mean, it seems like it applies almost in every element of of society or life too. You could even look at the same thing with investing. Even if you're the first person in on the ground floor, it's the highest level risk, <clears> presumably. <throat> and then after a little while, the confidence starts building. People are more okay throwing their money into something because now they see the, the group behind it, the, sure. the support behind it, um, or the bystander effect. I don't, it was Kitty. I don't remember her last Genevieve, name. Yeah. yeah. Kitty Genevieve. Yeah. How many, and how many people, you know, knew that there was someone in distress and yeah. Right. And I mean, like a lot of the things back then and, you know, there's been additional research on it and people sometimes reach some different conclusions, but it is, mm -hmm. it's one of it, it is definitely a fact that the, the more people you have available to do something, the more common it will be for people to say, someone else will handle this, not me. Like we used to, I was a Red Cross um, first aid and CPR instructor for decades. And I would always tell them, don't just turn into the crowd and say, someone call 911. Point right at someone and say, do you have a cell phone? Please get it out and call 911. And then point to one more person. Do you have a cell phone? Please get it out, call 911. And between the two of you, someone will get through and guide them here, right? Because if you just turn and say it, and it's a group of 20 or more, it's toss-up whether you'll get anybody to get on their phone. Right. I mean, they'll get on their phone because they'll want to video it so they can put it on Snapchat later. 
But will they actually make the phone call to help save the life? I don't know. So you got to point them out, call that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that this is obviously some element of this is human nature. Some element of this is, is quote unquote normal or natural. How, how have you harnessed this then in your experiences to form these virtuous groups or cults? Like what, what have you formed these communities around that you've had success with in the past? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's part of, at some level, it's just kind of part of leadership, right? It's mm-hmm. to say, we're part of a team, you know, we're, we have a purpose, we're doing something special, we're doing something worthwhile, because that's how you get people to buy in and give their best effort. So that, that piece of it, I think, is true everywhere. Um, and so it's pretty common, like, so for example, when I, when I was leaving my ship, um, the first ship that I served on for about five years, and the, the junior officers that... Uh, I trained uh, referred to themselves as frets trained men. Right? <laughs> That's interesting. Little, that, that, there's another little cult, right? Um, but it was something where they felt like they had, you know, gotten something special out of it. You know, they were they were sort of uniquely equipped to do a certain job, which is great. Um, and I think maybe here on campus, you know, the big thing I noticed was just that we had a small, uh, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't weak. It, it just wasn't particularly strong. And it was it was just a group of, of four to six veterans, maybe ten on a good day, that would get together once in a while. And um, but it just lacked a real core and a, and a vibrancy. And uh, and unfortunately, we had a young man um, who was a veteran on campus and had some issues with depression, had some issues with alcohol, and this young man took his own life. And that really sucked, right? I mean, that's not my first experience with that. It is a problem within the military and the veteran community. The only soldier we lost for my year in Iraq was to suicide. So kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough issue. And, uh, and it really made me feel bad because I felt like, man, we like, we all kind of knew each other in this group, but we didn't really know each other. We weren't, we weren't close enough to this guy and we weren't hanging out regularly enough. We weren't tight enough to know that this was, guy was off, that he was struggling, that he was at the end of his rope. And, it, and I thought to myself, well, but we could be that kind of group, so let's do it. And so, you know, a couple of the vets that came in the next year were like, we want to start having some social events. You know, we want to do more social stuff. Like, if we got together every Friday, would you show up and, you know, buy an appetizer for the group? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And so I just became this kind of informal mentor, and we started with this regular socializing, and that was really the key, because that was what they were missing. They were missing that, you know, hang out with your buddies, your tribe. You know, Junger, Junger wrote a whole book on this, and kind of he was writing he was writing his book as we were sort of doing this little informal experiment here on campus, and, and it really is true. You, you want to get back with that group. And so once you could reliably, you know, once once a bunch of vets would come out and see a bunch of other vets having a good time, you know, and it wasn't necessarily about the beer. There were folks that showed up and didn't drink at all, or there were folks that just came to get the appetizers and just talk about schoolwork or whatever, and people would bring their schoolwork and get help with their homework. So it was, it was good stuff, and that, that gradually grew. We just, from that group then, it became a, uh, like a family almost. We got to the point where we were having movie nights and game nights and uh, we would go on camping trips and it just became a really vibrant community up to about probably 50. We have meetings of as many as 50 people. It was really extraordinary, very, very large. And that was 
it was probably a third, you know, the veteran, the active available kind of undergrad veteran community was probably around 150 people then. So to have that level of involvement was extraordinarily high. Um, but again, same thing. Everybody just felt like they belonged. There was a regular set of things going on. It was, uh, it was a group to which you could sort of make a, your primary social commitment and really have a very full social schedule, right? So we would meet every Wednesday. We would have a social uh, hour every Friday. We would generally have some activity on Saturday. Obviously, football Saturdays was their whole big thing too, but even when it wasn't a football Saturday, other, we would go to other sports, go to the hockey game nights. Um, you know, on Sundays, somebody would host like a family dinner. So there oftentimes there would be, you know, four or five events a week when you just all that formal and informal stuff. I mean, there was right. formal student veteran association meetings, and then this group would just do all kinds of informal stuff on their own. Um, and at a point, we got so large that they started undertaking these major community service things. Like we uh, we got involved with the Volvic uh, for a couple of years, like three straight years. They did an LPGA championship here at the Volvic at the um, at the Travis Point Country Club, and we took over the parking franchise, which is a huge operation, and ran that for them, all as student veterans. Um, this was hundreds and hundreds, a thousand hours of community service. And in return, they let us run a 5K on the course during the championship. So it was really fun. You know, one time the racers got mixed up and they ran across the driving range and they were getting pelted with golf balls from these LPGA pros. It was pretty hilarious. But anyway, that was just great. I mean, that was such a vibrant group to have that sort of horsepower. You, When you're just a bunch of five or six people, you can't manage a big public impact thing like that. But yeah, so it was, those were great years. That was a really fantastic uh, period for the group. Yeah. So, and that, that all came down to, you know, doing something cool, feeling like you're part of a special group, you know, a little something for everybody. You want social, you want games, you want camping, you want family stuff. You want, you know, we just had a wide range of stuff and they all really felt like it was a kind of a tribe that they could be comfortable with and be safe and that supported each other. Yeah. So it was great. That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you you were incredibly successful. I mean, to get that that percentage of the student veterans to come to to all these events, like that in and of itself is impressive. The fact the turnout alone. Yeah. But then the impact too that that you're able to turn harness that that energy and that that determination into and put towards that you were able to have these positive impacts yeah. from it. Yeah, and a lot of good modeling, right? So they. You come out of the service and a lot of times you have a lot of dysfunctional ideas about everything from how to lead and interact with other humans to, you know, sort of this issue of, well, I'm in the military and these are civilians. And, and you're sort of like, well, but you're not in the military anymore. You you were in the military. You're, you're a civilian too now. And so you, you got to admit that. And then you got to, this is your new world, right? And you and you can't behave in this world the way you did. Then, of course, now not only are you a civilian, but you're a student. And so your identity is changing. The rules and norms are changing and having them adjust to all these things it's a challenge sometimes they resent it sometimes they don't have productive strategies so we coach them and give them classes and all that and I, they all were taught this phrase by me you know never go full vet because as a veteran in the military you get exposed to all kinds of stresses and you get normed and you get calibrated to levels of stress offhand cruel humor, just weird stuff that's just part and parcel of the very difficult experience of serving in the military. But you just can't uncork that and just spill that out on the table in public in a non-military setting. It makes everybody very uncomfortable because they've not seen anything like that before. They're just, they're going to be, at best, they're going to be super uncomfortable. 
at worst, they're going to be horrified or really, you know, feel like they're in danger. So, so I always tell them, right, never, never go full vet. That's our little internal joke there. Yeah, yeah no, I, I like that because it's the same. They're not part of that tribe, right? They're not part of that, that group, that community, the military. They don't have those experiences. It was the same thing as a scientist. Um, even in undergrad, I remember meeting with my advisor and talking about some of the surgeries I was doing. I was performing surgeries on rats at the time. Yeah. Um, and to me, it was just normal conversation. And my girlfriend at the time was there with me. And she was overhearing <clears throat> this conversation about us just casually talking about throwing <laughs> dead rats in the in the freezer to be taken out later. Yeah. And it was, it was almost, it shocked her, it dumbfounded <laughs> her, it, it kind of disgusted her a little right. bit. You yeah. know, it's... But to me, it was just natural, and yeah. so I I learned to temper my my scientist sure. in right. in me too, um, and yeah, it's it's that that idea of once the the groups collide, I think that's where you see that conflict um, to where you know you are in this one tribe or group in that case either the military or being in the science community, and then now you're met with another community that now you have to I mean coexist with yeah right, and so that that tribalism I think is part of what is natural to humans and that oh, yeah. that causes a lot of these issues especially lately um one thing i wanted to touch on is kind of the opposite side of this and how this is often harnessed for less positive impacts right sure. less you know we, we're seeing things lately like QAnon and antifa and even you know even groups or, or cults that were started maybe with positive intentions like Black Lives Matter and then people identifying with that tribe and doing negative things. And so this is nothing new either, obviously. Mm -hmm. this It's happening a lot right now, but throughout history you've had tribes or cults or groups of people that are very much, I guess, coalescing around negative right, uh, right. things. Mm -hmm. So how do you... How do you see that as, I guess, do you see that as an ine an inevitability and something that is just going to happen because of how humans are and how humans group with one another? Or do you think that it's something, you know, obviously you've had a lot more success with harnessing this human nature into something more positive. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with leadership more than anything else. I think it's sort of the, that old phrase, fish rots from the head, right? And I... I is I think as long as in my experience every every group that I've ever sort of built and constructed and I mean I literally started doing this in high school I just didn't really until I was older and got trained as a psychologist I didn't really realize what I was sort of doing naturally even back in high school but I liked forming these groups and having these social purposes and it was always first and foremost it was very important for me to everything to be done on a positive level right? you know, if you're not doing something positive if the individuals aren't getting something out of it why do it and then if it can also be something that serves a larger purpose and even better, right? So, you know, I, I formed a group um, when I was on my last deployment in Baghdad. We, we formed a group that, against all odds, built this huge scout camp on this Iraqi Special Forces base near our base. And it was one of the most successful, rewarding, gratifying things I've ever done. Um, but all based around this really positive concept of let's do something here that has a positive impact on the quality of life of the Iraqis, helps bring scouting back to Iraq all of this kind of inspirational stuff that really turned people on. Um, so I think as long as you have a, a positive valence to it, I, I don't think, I don't think it's inevitably, I don't think it's inevitable that it goes dark, but yeah, I mean, once the group starts to get pretty big, 
then there's this question of power, right? And what are you trying to do with it? And what is your goal? So again, I think as long as you've established this pretty robust sense of purpose, you know, and even, even with like the vet groups, it was, it was an imperfect sort of process and that you would always, when you put together, if you get 50 people together, you're going to have a couple that sort of have beef with each other. Mm-hmm. But we just tried to model a sort of a tolerant thing of saying, well, look, you know, you know, you might not like, he, he might not be your cup of tea, but you can at least be at the meeting and be civil. And then if we go out later, you can sit at one of the table and he gets to the other end and, you know, and then there's this guy who kind of stole the girlfriend from that guy, so they got a little beef, and okay, so they're not best friends, but again, we can still be civil, and oh, there's this guy who's way to the left, and this guy who's way to the right, you know, it it was, as long as you set that norm that that the the value of the tribe is is more than any one difference, right? Um, And, and, but I, you know, as a leader, and there were plenty of really solid, really great uh, student veteran leaders who led the group, right? And I just kind of percolated in the background as kind of like a mentor. But those those student veterans did a great job putting a really professional face on things. And and so I think we had a group that just modeled these fairly tolerant, inclusive behaviors, and it was a real positive thing. So we didn't have anything that kind of went sideways. But, yeah, really large groups, I mean, particularly when they're organized around expressly political ends. Right. And then particularly we have this culture now is sort of winner take all no compromise gotta just gotta crush the other side uh that seems different to me like i know as you get older like i've always observed that in every generation there's always the olds who are just like ah it's the end of the world you know and i remember you know reading stuff when i was when i was in my teens i would read stuff about you know born in the 60s but I would when I was when I was in the eighties, reading stuff about the fifties, with parents writing articles and people writing op eds about Elvis the pelvis Presley, who was gyrating on stage in a way that was apparently a threat to Western civilization, because it would throw the women into some kind of sexual frenzy that would be irrecoverable, and it was written in all seriousness. And of course, even in the eighties, it was just sort of like this is so silly. Really? This is what you occupied yourself with? And, but then in the 80s, you had, say, Tipper Gore and the Parents Musical Resource Council or something saying that if you rotated the records backwards, you could hear Satanic. And, and of course, now we look back at them and we're like, really? And so I just wonder, like, have I just become the old person now and I'm just being grumpy and cranky? Or, or is this actually a problem? Because to me, it looks and feels so different, the politics is always politics the sides are always the sides but you know 80s 90s you could be conservative and democrat you could be liberal and republican you really can't do that isn't a thing anymore and there was a really terrifying time lapse graph i saw a while ago that just put you know all the blue dots for the liberals and all the red dots for the conservatives in terms of the representatives and senators and then it showed every time any of them crossed the aisle. So if a red voted for a blue thing or a blue voted for a red thing, it was a line. And it was sort of like lots of purple smears all the way up through the 80s. And then in the 90s, it starts to fade. And in the aughts, it's kind of gone. And now it's like one or two little wispy lines. And you have these monolithic blocks of red reinforcing red and blue reinforcing blue. Nary an overlap or compromise. And I look at that, I'm like, that is really a difference. And that's how it feels. It feels now this sort of winner-take-all, 
got to get the power at any cost to stop the other side because the other side is not just different, not just wrong, they're evil. Yeah. And they've got to be stopped. And the other place that I saw this in my adult life, and I really didn't like what it caused, was in Iraq, where there was the Sunni and Shia that we were trying to get to vote and share power and have politics. And it was just so viciously tribal and absolutely like, oh, we've got to win this election so that we control all the levers so then we can do whatever we want to the bad people, but because we'll be in charge of the police, we can do whatever we want. And I'm thinking, no, that's not what democracy is for. That is absolutely, yeah, no, you're missing the point, right? But yeah, the, 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 I don't know, vicious is maybe too strong a word, but it just really struck me that it was like, you know, they're, they're different, and not only are they different, they're wrong, and they, they must be stopped, they must be crushed, they must be eliminated. Uh, there was a harshness to it, uh, a lack of charity, a lack of shared humanity that really disturbs me. Because when you, when you start that, when you get that deeply ingrained othering of them, I'm, I'm thinking of that Star Trek episode that I, I never fully appreciated as a child. I, I almost thought it was comedy where they had the... The guy, the, there was the two characters trying to kill each other, and, he, and they had faces that were half white, half black, right? But one was white on the left and black on the right, and the other was black on the left and white on the right. But it is a distinction that you would make looking at them. You're like, yeah, they're human beings, right? And it was such clever, it was just such clever writing, and it, it sort of went past me as a, as a youth. But then just to watch them literally destroying their planet, destroying each other with this virulent hatred and, and of course the start, they're like, what are you doing and can't you see he's half black can't you see he's half white and and then you realize like oh they are like oh it's just a little bit different and because of that they exterminate each other right and the same thing like Sunni Shia both Muslim why right or here right I'm your neighbor and then you vote Trump I vote Biden and what we now we have to choke each other to death on our front lawn so I the whole thing just like oof it's really a problem. I don't, I don't, I don't think there's anything good at the end of this road that we're we're dawdling along this road that I just think leads to an awful place. And uh, yeah, anyway. So yeah, well, and and it's interesting. I'm glad to get your perspective on it too, because obviously I'm I haven't lived through the '80s, right? Yeah. I haven't seen these these oscillations throughout history of kind of these same counterculture movements and, yeah. and things like that. I've only got the perspective of what's going on right now, but right now it's awful. Right now with cancel culture and everything going on, we've talked about it a lot on the show and how people just don't feel comfortable talking about certain things. Um, yeah. And it's not just, you know, it's mostly, it depends on the poll you look at, right? But, you know, 60 to 80% of people, all of these people are self-censoring or they're, you know, uh, afraid to discuss politics on any level and and so it's, it's gotten to the point, I think, now where we've not only aligned ourselves with our groups, our respective political side, I guess, yeah. but like you said now, the other side, I, I like you described it as evil. And I think that's the key here is where people start, um, once you see your opponent as evil. You're othering them. That, yes. That is, the, that is the thing that unlocks this Pandora's box of awfulness, right? Where right. then anything's justified. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, oh, uh, you know, somebody shot up a bus of them, mm -hmm. but it's them, right? Back to the, back to that Star Trek thing, right? Well, yeah, we blew up their city, but it's but it's them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're half white, right? right? Uh, yeah, and once you make that jump, it's a lot easier to make them. Uh, 
equate them with something subhuman, yeah. right? So now they're not to be afforded human rights. Yep. Now they're not to be afforded due process, yep. or now they're not to be afforded the freedom of speech because yep. now you they're bad enough, quote yep. unquote, to to yeah. censor or to get rid of or to you know what what have you. And you know, so I've seen this a little bit like. It's not brand new, obviously, like we've talked about, but, you know, things like Alex Jones getting pulled off of YouTube or yeah. things like, I mean, more recently, the, the Chauvin trial um, was we've had we had talked about this uh, a couple episodes on the podcast and how I it, it didn't sit right with me due process wise. Mm -hmm. It didn't, you know, and there's there's all kinds of these other examples, but I think the the problem right now, and I, I'm curious to get your opinion on it, is do you, do you think that this is starting more, or at least being perpetuated more, on the citizenry side or the political side? Because we see this with politicians, too, but I kind of feel like that's always, again, I don't have as much background or experience with it, but I feel like Democrats were always saying Republican bad, Republican was always saying Democrat bad, on some level, maybe not quite as bad. Yeah, they would talk, they would talk hella shit about each other, yeah. but then at the end of the day... The Speaker of the House, and you know the and 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 then the Vice President or you know whoever whoever were the you know the opponents at the time, you know they would talk big crap about their legislative agendas and the what was good or what was bad for the country, and then they would get together and go have beers right. at the congressional bar. Yeah, shake. And they don't really yeah. do that anymore, right? And there's not a culture of like let's try and find some common ground or let's get something good done for America. Now it's more of a, nope, my side has some things that needs to get done, and we're going to play super hardball. And that's where you start seeing this really slow dismantling of some of the protections that really encouraged the slowdown and the compromise. Like all of the informal and formal pieces of the Senate process, right, where, where you used to allow the minority to have some check on majority actions just to slow down the pace of change and let things cool off because it's always if you look at the most slipshod controversial and inflammatory stuff that either side has done they do it when they have the president every once in a while you get these rare windows where one side controls all three house senate and presidency and when you have that you they see it as a window and they, and they pick their one thing and they just jam something through and then, it, and then it causes all kinds of ramifications down the road because, of course, it was done quickly, right, without really vetting things out. And then there's all this, all this sore feelings about it, and it becomes a lightning rod for a change from the other side. So I think the Founding Fathers were kind of genius in the way they kind of hamstrung everybody. And it's like when you, when you take the two fighting kids and you put them inside the shirt, right, yeah. they have to be inside the same shirt. This is our get-along shirt, right? You just, you're stuck there with it. I... I like this idea because I think slow, slow, deliberate change with a lot of discussion. Everybody gets a chance to talk about it, and you make incremental changes over time. I think that's the best way to do it. Um, you know, the really big changes generally seem to be sort of problematic. And I guess you would tend to agree or disagree with that statement. I guess to the degree you felt the changes were happening quick enough. I mean, I, I could. I mean, I see how some people might feel they need to make bigger changes faster, um, but there's always, I think, a cost to doing that. Um, yeah, but no, you asked about like sort of this change. I think it's a toxic cyclone of interactions between uh, social media, people, and politics. Right. So I think the thing that really drives it now and just makes it exceptionally awful 
is the way that everyone can not just self-isolate, but that the, the platform that they choose sort of bricks them in without their knowledge. Like you, you end up going down this Facebook tunnel thinking that you're sort of exploring this Facebook space. But what's actually happening is that the algorithms and everything about what you do are just walling you in to this narrower and narrower path so that your reality is what you see in all of your things. And, and so, so it might be that there's all sorts of violence going on in American cities and rioting. But if at this point in time, the powers that be are not pushing it across the board, then most people won't be aware of it. And so you have this weird kind of agenda-based thing going on of like what gets shown to who and then what does get shown. So that's fundamental manipulation, right? Like if there's something going on in an American city and whoever's controlling those pipelines wants the president to look bad because of it, they'll make sure that story gets out. If it's almost the same thing but it's two years later, then that story will not get out. And I find that super curious, right? The story's there. Like, you can go find it, but you can't find it in a mass push, right? There's the things that, you know, on any given day, they're the news stories that most people who are paying attention have heard about. And they think that whatever they're, they pride themselves on being aware and, and, and looking carefully in their stovepipe, but it's such a stovepipe, right? And so, so you'll get those three things that were being fed to you, and you'll have that news, but what about over here? And there's no longer, at least I'm not aware of one that you could really call objective, right? So, I mean, maybe you could turn to the BBC. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's the thing that freaks me out is that you have people deciding, people who aren't really in the news media and aren't really elected, and they're kind of controlling what gets out. And then the algorithms themselves are always at work to show. And that's to show you only what you have previously looked for and to show you the things that are the most upsetting to you. So if you are on the left, you will get only the worst things about the right. Look, look at these animals. Look at these, right? Again, look at these half-whites. Look what they're doing, right? And, um, and that also bugs me. And so I've gone to great pains to frustrate the algorithm. So I, um, so for example, and I, I did this because I genuinely kind of thought she was an interesting candidate and I wanted to support her. I thought that Tulsi was interesting. So I donated mm -hmm. to Tulsi. But then that immediately then propagates and I start getting all of these fundraising things and all of this stuff from the right, right? And then I liked, um, there was a, a senator here and um, who was making a Senate run, John James, and I, you know, I got interested in him. And so that, because this, so my, interestingly, the, the I don't get us. I get a very bright, I, I subscribe to different websites, right? So, um, Daily Wire, Daily Cost, you know, you, you can, you can, if you do the work, you can get a broader thing to put together for yourself. And then what you start to see is they literally, it's like a template. Like they, they'll just, you know, if it's this term and these guys have the presidency, but they, but they don't have the Senate and they want to get a judge through, you know, these guys pick up these placards to say these things and these guys pick up these placards to say these things. And then two years later, when the roles are reversed, you, you could literally see the same stories, but it's like they put, these, put down their right. placards, slid them across the table, these guys, and they pick them up without a trace of irony, saying the complete reverse, and the news just parrots it, and everybody in the stovepipes drinks it down. Oh, there they are being bad again, mm -hmm. without any concept of like, it's just where your ox is at the time, right? 
I stuff like that just freaks me out. Or they or they'll run these memes, and one meme will be the complete inverse of the other. So you're being shown the same thing, but one is inverted upside down. And I just and nobody's that kind of stuff isn't being actively shown to people. I just wish there was a way to. You know, I have, I have some students who are doing a really cool thing called uh, Civil. Um, I guess you give them a little plug from Loud. CivilMedia.io, I think, is how they're doing now. But but it's a it's a neat little newsletter that tries to show both stovepipes and then compare them, mm-hmm. and then show that whichever side you choose, you can at least dabble on this other side and see what angle they're taking. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, you can at least have some appreciation of why they think you're wrong. Even if you can't imagine that you could ever be thought wrong, at least you could, you know. So that's, a, I think, a nice effort. I don't know. There's some other folks that are trying to work on that. but Yeah. Well, and I think the those echo chambers, they're dangerous too because the the narrower the echo chamber gets and the, the more consistent everyone's views seem, yeah. now you also think your side, your tribe, your cause is virtuous. Now you oh, think yeah. you are, not only is the other side evil, uh-huh. like I think that's super important, that's a big part of it, but, but you are... Well, that's the other in, side of that same coin. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so now you are the right, you are the one that is the righteous, the virtuous, uh-huh. the the savior, Yeah. and so now it only reinforces all of those beliefs about uh-huh. I can do anything to stop this other side, and that... When you know when you talk about flipping the script and switching stories every two or two or four years, yeah. everyone notices it on some level because everyone calls the other side a hypocrite. Yep. But they're unwilling to actually. Well, maybe unwilling. Maybe you just don't see it yeah. because obviously your side's media yeah. doesn't you know, emphasize. Yeah, it's the like hypocrisy. the glass in your own eye, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's almost you know both sides are gaslighting their own side into thinking the only other hypocrite is is the bad guy the, the evil one yeah and that and that moral stuff just it really makes the discussion even worse um because then you just it's almost uh what did I, I i called somebody out for the other day i said i said uh I said something like you have this intolerable smugness right where like you're you're trying to explain your position and you're just being so pedantic and so so disrespectful you know he, 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 and this individual wasn't even really thinking about it he wasn't even really he was just he was just trying to explain his position and and then ends up I don't know how to describe it really just it just comes across right when, when you really feel like you have the moral high ground and the people that you're talking to and about are just so beneath contempt comes through and it's very hard to have a productive discussion right nobody nobody likes contempt right you want to see what shuts down a relationship what kills a marriage quicker than anything is contempt and so when you start letting that percolate into the discussion when you can't have an, a truly open say like i just want to understand where you're coming from if you can do that you'll have a chance but if it's if it's, i want to understand why you're so awful <laughs> you, you, you missed right. my point. You're, oops. Right. Now, um, so I, I think the other side of this is the pushback against pushback against it is the the idea of when you try to engage with that civil discussion, when you try to engage with that crossing the bridge and, and seeing the other perspective and, yeah. and engaging with the other side, so to speak. I, I think that pushback that you get to that is even more remarkable to me. Um, and so I've brought this example up a couple times on the podcast, but the, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, shooting that, that had happened, um, 
I we had done an episode on that, and it was to kind of get both sides. He was being called simultaneously being called a hero and a white supremacist terrorist. And so I wanted to get these people to, to discuss and see, okay, where is that disconnect? Because those are two very different polls. Yeah. And so I was reaching out to various people on Facebook that I would see posting about it one way or the other. And there were a couple people where I didn't express my personal stance on it at the time. I talked yeah. about it during the podcast, but at the time when I was reaching out to these people, I was just saying, you know, I'm hosting this discussion on our podcast. We want to bring these people together to really see where these different perspectives are coming from. Yeah. Do you want to come on? Clearly, you're passionate about it. You yeah. know, I want to give you this platform to talk about it. And some people that I've talked to, talked to about several other more important things in the past and who have had good relationships with and things completely not only refused the conversation, but just despised the idea of the discussion happening. That, right. one pla that one side could even get that platform, that you could even justify, in this case, it was that it was self-defense. Right. But even that you could even platform that idea and even allow that, justify it on any level by discussing it civilly yeah. and not just pushing back against it. Yep. And so I wanted to ask you and pose that to you because you've had these experiences forming these social groups and trying to engage in these, um, these more productive, constructive groups. Yeah. What kind of pushback have you seen from it? What kind of opposition have you seen? Yeah. Um, well, I think, yeah, so we've had a, a variety of interesting and in some cases disappointing experiences. But and I, so one piece of it is I think some of it is eternal. There's, there's an eternal truth of, you know, if you never want to be criticized, I think the phrase goes, you know, do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing, right? Right. And the, the, the correlation to that is that in the military is that if, if nobody's complaining about anything you do, you're probably not doing anything worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And then the last piece of that is that you just – you could never please everyone. And so I've really come to understand that. I spent I've, – I've spent decades tracking. I mean teaching is one of those – teaching is one of those professions where you get a lot of data. To, as long as you're in an organized system, you get a lot of data from student feedback. And I also seek my own feedback. And so I've got just tons and tons of data going back decades. And, and it was always the case that uh, because of my style and the way I teach and my personality, I've always been able to delight 50 plus percent of my students, like saying this is the best, if not, one of the best, if not the best class I've ever had. And then another 40 percent would be like, this is a good class. Glad I took it. And then you'll have maybe like, 10, 15 that are kind of ambivalent and somewhere buried in that 10, 15 that are just merely adequate. There's always that 1% that's just like, no, I hate this class. I hate Dr. Fence. And it's really strange to me because you got this huge, huge number that are just ecstatic with the product I'm delivering and the way I'm delivering it. And you got this little nugget and I've tried all kinds of ways to get at that because it kind of, it was like a, like a rock in my shoe. I was like, you know, it didn't make me want to stop hiking, but I'd rather not have that rock in my shoe. And uh, but it turns out that it's just not a thing, right? I, I maybe it's solvable, but I'm not sure it is, right? I, I think that you just have to accept that, you know, out of all the different things, you know, people just like and don't like certain things based on personal visceral reactions, or you just sometimes you just meet people and you're just like, I don't like that guy. Doesn't even really have a reason. Just something triggers, just you know that. At Malcolm Gladwell blink, right? That just that initial impression. Maybe I remind them of an old boyfriend or a friend that did them wrong or, you know, an uncle that creeped them out. I don't know, whatever it is, you know. Um, uh, but it's, it's that one percent of the time. They're going to they're gonna be unhappy. So there's, there's always this thing where some people are just not going to be happy with whatever you're doing. And then you add into the fact that there are just individuals that 
derive, and I've, I've met numerous of them, and I'm sure they've existed as long as there have been humans. There are just humans who derive a certain amount of satisfaction in breaking other people's things. Yeah. It's not quite bullying. It's a little more sinister than that. But it's sort of a, you know, here's something you care about. It's a really good thing. It's helping other people. And and either I don't like it or I, I wanted it to be – I wanted you to make it something that it isn't or whatever, and now I'm going to get you. And so every once in a while, I'll have these students who will come and they'll just be like, well, I, you know, I think this class needs to be harder, right? Like I, I, could, I could pass a harder exam, so I want you to make exams. I don't, and I almost do almost no exams in my class because I just think they're mostly BS. But, uh, but I've had students like that. Like, oh, you know, well, my, my mom, you know, is a textbook uh, salesperson. And this is the textbook you should be using for your class, Dr. Fritz. I'm like, oh, thank you, Susan. I appreciate your – like, what do you do with that, right? right? And then this same student just had this hugely critical thing at the end. And she just was basically like – essentially it was, I wanted this class to be harder so that I could still excel at a harder thing and and shake my glory down on those who couldn't keep up. And I, the fact that, that almost the fact that the majority of the students in my class got an A was deeply vexing to her. The fact that I set a, a mastery standard, so if you meet the standard and you can demonstrate the skills, then you can you know not everybody gets an A, but you know I don't I'm not forcing a curve where twelve percent of the people have to fail. I mean I right. think that's absolute crap. I think courses that do that and instructors that do that are just you know pedagogically reprehensible right um but anyway i just have students like that or others that are just like well you know i think it should be this way and so now i'm going to i'm going to file a complaint and and then and, and say that you said that you know so they'll they'll take my words and twist it and i'll have to go to the, the dealer like did you say that you think that everyone who has autism should be murdered and i'll be like no nope, pretty sure i didn't say that <laughs> Pretty sure that's kind of awful, and right. no, right? Yeah. But it's like what? It, like somebody doesn't take the time to, and they and they do it on purpose. They're like, oh, what, what could we, you know, what could we say? We got to, it's gonna be something controversial, so we gotta make him look really bad, right? So there's this game you play of like, oh, let's let's get him, right? And it's it, it never comes to anything. Of course, it's, you know, it's almost always either entirely a lie or a really gross distortion, right? Um, and so, yeah, you just see this sometimes. And I, you see this with the groups. You see individuals who just decided they wanted to wreck something that was really important. They, they kind of got mad. They didn't, they didn't get their way. They, they wanted to change the group in some way, and the group didn't want to change. Or they, they wanted the group to do a certain activity, and the group didn't want to do it. And instead of kind of building a consensus, they just want to burn it down. Right. So it's back to that same thing, right? Yeah. You could, if you really want to come into a group and change it, you, you, you build a thing, right? Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I, uh, so yes, I do see that and it is kind of destructive. I don't know that there's an answer for it. I think it is becoming a little more common because you are getting, you're getting more students in who really feel like they, uh, they have their issue and their issue just trumps everything, right? It's a, it's a, I feel this thing so acutely that that almost anything is justified in my pursuit of its rectification, and 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 of course that's messy and dangerous, and we don't usually indulge very young humans in this sort of. It's not a game, but it's you know so so that you would you would normally at the university you would normally there would be a role for the university to play to say. 
this is this is the space for the collision of ideas, and this is kind of how we do this as adult, educated humans. And it feels to me like in a lot of areas, the university has kind of abrogated that and yeah. just said, well, uh, you know, the, the inmates got loose, and now they're running the show. And I, I look at some of that, and it, it, I don't know how to describe it. Sort of, it's a little, it's a little discomforting. It's a little disturbing, uh, and and it's also hard for me to sort of formulate a a really, it's it's hard and it's also dangerous, right? You 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 have this thing now where even just kind of raising this issue could expose you to charges of being. You know, and I'm not saying I'm not giving anything specific precisely for this reason, but you know, I have students who want to pursue a specific agenda item to the exclusion of all else, and then. If you're not on board with that, then you are like a bad person. Like you need to be destroyed, and uh, that's kind of new, right? Like I mean, I when you know in the '80s, right? We had um, we had the um, the um, by any means necessary, and a, a number of uh, you know a number of protest groups that were really trying to look at underrepresented minorities um, in terms of the numbers on campus, which did needed to be looked at. Those numbers were not good. They still are not good. Um, and how do we fix that? That, that? I think that's an important debate to have. But now on campus, like I'll have students in the School of Ed come to me and say, yeah, like Dr. Fretz, your, your class was just so unusual because it was the one place that we could actually like get both sides, right? And so if we want, like you were the only one who really taught us the depth and the width and the breadth of the issue of like charter schools. If we bring up charter schools in any other class, we're simply told, Charter schools are the implements of Satan, and anyone who endorses them is literally Hitler. And that wasn't helpful to them as students, and I don't think it would be, right? Um, and so that's a tough one, right? Like, you, like I don't – like, do we want to have greater awareness along a lot of these social justice issues? Absolutely. Is there a history of a lot of really messy stuff that we need to kind of sort out, acknowledge, and kind of get in a different direction? Absolutely. But is the direction of doing that – Capping it, I say, nope. Now we only talk about this. I don't. I don't. I mean, for the I know. I know students who have literally abandoned. Their, they have walked away from their careers of being teachers because of their experiences at the University of Michigan. And I, wow, that is tough, right? Like that is that can't be what we want. So I, I don't. I don't propose to have the answer. I just have some misgivings about the the specifics of how it plays out. It's a tough one for me, right? Because I love my university. And, I, and I, I know to me what the university should represent is this space, this collision of ideas and this, you know, higher thinking and a ways of clarifying and this debate and, and sort of by having all these collision of ideas, you, you slowly arrive at a better and better vision of what you're incrementally closer to the truth right? incrementally closer to a, to a good solution. And of course, that that isn't happening anymore. Now it's like, no, we have to make the, the campus has to be made safe. Some some ideas must be completely forbidden I don't, I don't know right like uh, you know because I'm thinking back like in the 60s right and this crazy stuff with like the you know trying to protect the these awful Nazi groups wanted to have this march right but we allow that to happen and more importantly we keep that kind of ick not hidden I just now it's there you see it now you know where it is and everybody can see it for what it is and you can get a really strong public response against it and I think actually like Allowing them to march, having a hundred marchers and having a thousand, two thousand people saying that's not us. I think the time was like Skokie or something, right? And uh, 
I think that's actually the better message. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's some people with these messed up ideas, and there's ten times as many who are like, nope, that's not it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I mean, to me, that's what I would, I mean, it would be great if that didn't happen at all, but if it's going to happen, I want to see it that way, right? Mm-hmm. So, as opposed to, oh no, now we're going to never let those people yeah. march, because as soon as you pick, like, okay, we don't like that, well, what else don't we like? Well, now we don't like anybody who says this word or we don't like anybody who likes this candidate or we don't like anybody who registers for this political party and off we go right yeah it's it's you know it's the slippery slope idea right the second something is bad enough well now who is making that decision of what is bad enough and what else gets lumped in with it and then how long is it until that mob comes for you too that's the piece that nobody pays attention right. to right yeah because right everyone you everyone has done something that would piss people off on uh. some level i think it was jordan peterson said that if you get a group large enough if you say something you will offend someone and oh, yeah, verbatim, but, but 20 people right. just get a group of 20 people that's about, yeah back to my point about how you can't make everybody happy right? right or if or if i you know if, if you gave me a million bucks and a couple of private investigators, right? And I could I could sort of bribe whoever I wanted, and I could investigate whoever I wanted, and I could dig wherever I wanted. You know, you will find trash on on almost everyone, mm-hmm. right? And it's just ridiculous. And then you could just, you know, it's been done to me. People just sort of selectively will go back on my social media and will be like, well, you know, look at this. And it's like, well, that's not fair. Like, you, yeah. you're presenting that as in one way, and that's not actually what's going on there. More importantly, that you know, whole post was designed to sort of entertain a whole separate group of what you're doing. Like what you're doing is fundamentally intellectually dishonest and shitty, and you're doing it specifically to enable your little goal of trying to make me look bad for, for basically for your personal jealousy reasons. And I'm like, you're just an awful human being. And, and somehow we seem to have lost the ability to sort of critique unfair play right like in the in the you know back in the day it would be you know if if you were playing the game and and then right before the pitcher throws the ball the catcher just punches the batter in the in the in the back in the in the kidneys as hard as possible and he falls down and 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 doesn't swing the bat and it's called a strike you know we have the equivalent of that going on now with media and other things where it's like, hey, man, that's dirty, right? Like, that's filthy what you just did. And um, I'm thinking of that, what's that poor kid the, with the, the guy, the, the kid who was, the kid who was being harassed with the guy with the drum. And, the, oh, and then uh, the, Nick Sandman. Oh, my gosh, yeah. that whole story. Right. That whole story to me just encapsulated all of it. And it's funny because it's a, that story is like a, a kind of a cautionary tale and a very strong thing on the right. But I, I go to my friends on the left and they mostly, they mostly missed it. Or, or yeah. if they do remember it, they're like, Oh, that was that awful kid. That was right. that awful kid who did those awful things. And, and I'm they like, don't know. About and, the yeah, and, and, and I'm like, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like you like missed the entire thing, right? You, you were fed your little soundbite in your stovepipe mm-hmm. and you don't miss, you missed the larger ramification that this kid was completely destroyed by this sort of media mobocracy and the angle that they wanted to present, and this, they had a script, and they went for it. And I'm like, that was just terrifying, that all the individuals that were supposed to kind of be the adults in the room and kind of have some idea of truth or fairness, and nobody nobody cares anymore. And that's the thing that kind of weirds me out. I'm like, man, we have just, this game has changed, where why would you even get in the batter's box? Because now the catcher can literally feloniously assault you and then, and then, we, oh, when you got a strike, oh, you're compla- you, you're only complaining because you didn't, because you, you got a strike and you got out. It's just you're just being bitter. 
And actually, I think it was because I was punching the kidney, and that's not cool. And I think as a society, you got to kind of decide what kind of what kind of uh, game you want to play, what kind of uh, what kind of results you want to get. Because yeah. man, when that becomes the norm, then everybody's just like, okay, well, let's wait and see what happens when your batter gets up, mm-hmm. right? And now, why even why even play the game? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it gets a little dirty, and I there's something about that where we just don't want to we don't want to. We don't seem to be willing to call out the dirt on our own side or or even on the other side, right? It's just sort of like, oh, they got what they deserve, right? And then when my side does it, it's actually not a problem because we're too virtuous. Like, no, no, that, like lying, should, that's always bad, right? And de- deliberately, you know, like when you see these photos and it's like framed – you know, to look like something bad is happening. And then there's another person taking another photo of, right. so there's the photo of the person taking the photo this way. And it turns out it's like staged in the corner of an alley. And, it, and, it, and the person is actually like, you know, like, you know, it's a, there's a, a picture of, it was like a, a joke. I think, I think they were making fun of CNN, but all these networks do it. Um, but it was like a, you know, someone, a kid with a boot on his face, right? But then they back out, and it's like the, the kid has his own hand in the boot, holding the boot on his face, taking a picture. And it's like, okay, yes, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Right. Right? Like, it's, it's this game of who can, who can get the optics to be inflammatory and then sell a narrative and as long as that feeds the narrative that sells in your stovepipe, it runs away. Get back to the Sandman thing, like I, or anything. Like I love to, I love to ask. Cause I ask my students a lot of times about this. I say, "You're the biggest problem." They're like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "Well, here's the deal." Right? Answer this question. I throw a question up on the remote answering system. And I said, "Who said I can see Russia from my house?" And I list, you know, Sarah Palin and Nancy Reagan and Tina Fey and somebody else or whatever. And they all pick Palin, yeah. and I'm like, Palin never said that, right? And that was that was a that was a comedian on Saturday Night Live. But because if your politics and I haven't I haven't ever actually disaggregated that, I would suspect that overwhelmingly the wrong answers come. There are plenty of wrong answers on the right, but I bet almost everyone who gave the wrong answer affiliates left. Then I asked the same question: Who said I invented the internet? Because that's something that's usually used to make fun of Gore, and most Republicans like to make fun of Gore. And of course, overwhelmingly they say, "Well, and of course, Al Gore never claimed to invent the internet. He did say that he correctly that he had, he put money toward, he helped as a as a senator, he helped invest in DARPA and the early DARPA net and everything, which was the start of the internet." Um, but anyway, those are just I just use those two examples to just show how what you think you know ain't so. And and then and they and they all are like blown away for a minute and then and then I can see like the blinders go right back down and they're like, Yeah, but everything else I know is still correct. And on oh, no, right. they go. I do yeah, it's like I, I did I tried. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Yeah, well and from the student perspective I've seen the same thing. Um, you know, I've had I had I will again use a little less specificity for for the sake, but I've had classes here um, in the School of Public Policy where discussing policies, you get one set of readings for that week. And, you know, numerous of the readings are from the professor. Um, and then the other ones are hand selected from sources that, by and large, agree with yeah, a lot of what the professor is saying. Yeah. And then, you know, you you go to discuss it, right? And the, the idea of this, this class was to encourage these kinds of discussions around these policies. And it's like, well, how can you encourage those discussions if you're coming half-loaded? Yeah. You're only coming with half the information. Yeah. And it showed. It showed it in the discussions, in the, the, the worst parts of that class, I think, or at least, you know, 
from my perspective, were the small group discussions where I had to sit through these echo chambers now of people who were fed the the one side of the narrative and already were coming in with preconceived notions of the narrative and already had their, you know, political leanings or or beliefs. and Yeah. And then, you know, we went to discuss it and nothing would get, nothing would really get discussed, right? And so... Well, we'd be like, with the discussion, would be like, yeah, those other guys are really bad, right? right. Or they sure are. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the, the few times one of those other guys would say something in the class, it would be met with may- maybe a, a quick comment or something, like quick, you know, address- addressing of it, and then, you know, kind of moving on. Like, we'll, we'll go back to what we were talking about and things. And so you see things like that in these classrooms, and it, it, is, it is worrying, right? It is worrying to see that these ideas are being maybe not suppressed. Suppressed is maybe the wrong word because they're not actually being propped up in the first place in this environment because yeah. there, there's nothing to suppress because that no one is really expressing it in the first place. Yeah, because they don't feel it's safe to do, right? Right. Yeah, because if they do bring it up, it pretty much well, guaranteed will get you shouted down. Mm-hmm. Even back in the 90s when I was in grad school, I found that to be problematic, that the there was very poor representation of anything center to center right, mm-hmm. and that it was very common for you know individuals and professors to make really sweeping comments, or in some cases make fairly vicious political jokes that were sent out on department wide email servers. And I was like, ooh, I'm pretty sure if I took that little George Bush joke that you just rolled out, set it aside, waited a couple years put Obama in for Bush and rolled it back out as a faculty member on that same thing that the place would burn down and it would be, I never did it of course, because it was like, and I, I wasn't particularly invested and I'm not particularly anti Obama or pro Bush, but I, you know, I just thought, man, you know, the, it just, there's a, there's sort of a dishonesty to it. Right? Yeah. Like you're, you're going to let that stuff pass on one side, but not on the other. Right. And, uh, you know, where you're going to, you're going to say, well, of course, you know, nobody could support that. We're not going to support this because no, no thinking person could support X or Y or Z. And, uh, and that's not how you get good, vigorous intellectual debate, right? I mean, they, the university was supposed to be like the one place where you get this kind of liberal arts, broad-minded, open-minded value of debate, how to debate well, how to try and seek truth. It was, I don't, to me, it was never supposed to be about indoctrination or or, or single viewpoints. So there's something about this sort of current vibe that's just so disconcerting and, and like, displeasing, right? Of, like, I feel like we're just, like, maybe abandoning our principles is too harsh, but I don't know. It feels bad to me, right? It it feels like this is not what this is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I, and it's not just a, I mean, is, there's a practical side to it as well. Like, I like leave aside my personal, and I don't think it's just me. I do think the Academy has had this historically, this sort of role to play. But leave that aside. It's just a practical thing of who's going to want to pay the kind of money right. it takes to come. If, if, if this continues and it becomes this sort of very monolithic kind of ideological training ground, I, I'm not sure who, you know, if that really is the right way to do it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I'm kind of glad we got to this topic. I, I, I've i seen this going around a lot, right? You hear this idea of liberal indoctrination in academia or liberal indoctrination in higher education, and it's often cast aside as a conspiracy theory or as a, as a 
you know, outlandish claim. And frankly, you know, look, sometimes, depending on who's talking about it, sometimes it is an outlandish claim. Sometimes it is much described much worse than it is, right? Sure. There is still a plenty of intellectual discussion that happens, you know, again, from the student perspective. It's not like all of my classes have been that bad. It's not right. like I can't have a discussion with anyone. But I think that everything we're discussing is is just that. It's like you said, it's indoctrination of this one mindset, this this narrative, this set of beliefs. I mean, there's there's one to my observation, those who are left of center feel very little need to self-censor on campus. And to my observation, those who are right of center absolutely feel the need to self-censor. Uh, I recently became a faculty advisor for uh, one of the few conservative groups on campus precisely because they had no faculty advisor. No, no one would do it. And I was like, well, I'll do it. Like, I don't agree with everything that you guys are about, but uh, some of it I do. And, and I think you should have an advisor. And I just think this is ridiculous, right? So, but that's a good, you know, good piece of it, right? Like, there is, there is definitely a vibe. And, and you can't, you know, it's not a conspiracy. It's a natural outflow of a very, it feels deliberate. I mean, I don't know. I guess you've got to be careful. I choose your words or it sounds like a conspiracy. But let's just say that, that it was pretty clear, 60s onward, that academia sort of became the focus of the left, right? And it was like, this is a good route through which to affect the social change that we want to see in society. And so you now have, and the intervening, I mean, I don't have, I don't have the data for what it looked like in the 60s, but I would right. guess in the 60s that surveys of faculty members in terms of political affiliation and registered political party affiliation would be a little closer to 50-50. I don't know for sure, so that's speculation on my part. What I do know is that in the last 10 years, you've, you've seen plenty of surveys, um, and they looked even just at the Big Ten schools. And I think the, the most diverse was maybe 75% registered left Democrat, 10% registered right uh, Republican, and 15%. And there were some places, like I think it was like, Penn State, it was like ninety something percent. So look, let's we're not dumb, right? We're all we're all basically rational humans. If you have nine out of ten faculty members subscribing to a particular political ideology, this this is the ideology of your campus, and and that and that distortion of way more than fifty percent, right? In a nation that remains, you know, you look at you look at these margins of victory in our you know in our in our elections, right? It's a couple million people out of 350 right. million. Yeah. We are just, we are very much a 50-50 kind of nation, duking it out around the tiny margins. And I think that's how it should be, right? That, I think that's good. And I think that the system is still basically working. But in a 50-50 nation, to have the institutions of higher learning be 90% on one side of that, uh, that has an interesting effect. Yeah. And I'm not alleging anything nefarious. I'm just making an observation. That's, you know, you... You want you want nine out of your ten Supreme Court justices that way? No, you don't. You don't want nine out of ten of your, you know, like even your local government, right? Like I mean, this isn't this isn't a trick. This is just you, you, if we're being honest with each other, you want your team to have nine out of ten, right. and not to have the other team, right? And so, okay, great. Now that we acknowledge that, then maybe we just say, does that impose any sort of extra concern then for academia to be extra vigilant about? Just even if it isn't a conspiracy to suppress, it's like 
you've created this environment now that's not like the country you're drawing from. Right. And what do you, you know, I don't know. Yeah, so what responsibility do you have to then present the other side? Because it being 90% faculty that lean left may not be a problem in and of itself if that 90% made a conscious effort to actually yeah. present both sides of the yeah. argument and yeah. intellectually discuss yeah. these things, you yeah. know. And again, a lot of them do. A lot of them, you know, I don't want to say that everyone is out there spouting off their political views and, and, and you know, and preaching their own belief systems, but a lot a lot do, you know. And so I think that's the problem is that that complacency that people get within their own viewpoints that, again, you know, pr probably because they're in their own social media echo chambers as well and things. And the only way, to, you know, when you have that 90-10, you would have to have almost all of them going out of their way to create space. Right for these other views, and actually the opposite is true, that in the general vibe is, well, no, the other views should be in the minority because they're awful, and they're bad people, and, and they shouldn't come to campus, and we shouldn't have the speakers, because we've, we've, be able to, we've created a campus that's largely free of these ideas. Why would we bring somebody in to spread that idea when that idea is clearly not just different, not just wrong, but evil? Right. And off you go. And then you get, oh, uh, it's unsafe. It's unsafe to have this person come in. It's like, eh. And when you have that mentality within the faculty, it will trickle down to the students. There was a case at Case Western University um, out by me where a pro-life student organization tried forming. And they there was a big, huge petition. And, and, and I want to say, this is me spitballing, so don't quote me, but, you know, I want to say around at least several hundred, if not couple thousand students signed a petition to basically oust this organization saying that the university shouldn't recognize it as an official um, university organization so that they wouldn't have access to all the resources yeah, that everyone else does. Guidance, yeah, yeah. All of that stuff. And the letter expressly said that it wasn't about how they expressed their views. It wasn't about the nature in which they were expressing their pro-life sentiments. It was that these sentiments were pro-life. Yeah. It was that no, regardless of how civilly or constructively these views can be Some ideas must not be tolerated. Right. It was it, They're inherently dangerous or inherently violent or yeah. what have you. And I look, I get it. Abortion is one of the more touchy ones that I, oh, I get lots of people. Hot, definitely hot button. Yeah. So... So I get the pushback, I get people being unhappy about it, but that, that idea, that sentiment that can then spread to say like, okay, no, them, they're the ones that aren't deser deserving yeah. of these same resources that we get and, yeah. you know, whatnot. So it does trickle down. It does trickle down to the student's level and, yep. and you, then that, you know, it perpetuates the cycle of now the other students that are more conservative and more Republican or more, you know, whatever. Now they're not going to want to speak up more, and yeah. you know, the cycle continues. So yeah, and this idea that you should never have to be confronted with ideas that make you uncomfortable—that right. weirds me out, right? Like mm -hmm. this is because again, you, you look at all these issues and you look at our country, and it's like fifty-fifty for most things, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just politics, all these issues, and there's just grabbing power and forcing your will on the other side is just. It's not the route, right? That leads to civil war, the, the tyranny of the majority, the, the breakup of the country. I mean, history is just replete with examples of this. And uh, I just, I hate to, I hate to see people, I hate to see people tinkering with the bolts that are holding the wings onto the country, right? Like it's like I want, the, I want the country to keep flying. We we got a pretty good thing going, right? And like, let's continue to make the changes and continue to to work on the issues without actually unbolting the wings. So there's certain things that are kind of the core of it, right? And this idea that we should have vigorous clash of ideas in a civil manner, in a, in a civic space, and 
have the you know have the government you know run as representative democracy where people are elected and they can really try to compromise and find a path that makes most people happy mm-hmm. as opposed to the hardball you know let me get let me get my whole team to control everything and then we'll really ram it home and do what we need do what we want screw the other guys so how, I mean, I guess in closing, then, how, what do you think going forward? How do we encourage that as opposed to what is now becoming the norm? How do we encourage the, you know, how do we push back against these things like cancel culture and, yeah. and suppression of ideas and tyranny of the majority and push back towards yeah. these other these other ideals? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the, first, the first piece is going to be you have to recognize that there is some... There's some serious bullshit in the country's history about how certain groups have been treated, whether this is women, minorities, persons of color, slavery, all of it. That's right. You, you can't we can't just paper over that. We can't just be like, yeah, it was a while ago. Moving on. So so something right like there, there, you have to be willing to have those hard discussions and make some changes and put some policies in place to sort of try to sort of balance things back out. I don't have all the answers for that, but I, I know we can't just say, uh, it's in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have to recognize that there's, there's, there's amends that need to be made and, and, uh, and changes need to happen. Um, and then that's, so that's the first one. Then you, but then you also really have to sort of look at how we're choosing to play the game because all across the board, and this is for me, we're, we're doing this in a way that, alienates uh, civil discussion that, that alienates people and, and, and gets them in the stovepipe. So, so yeah, we should critique what's going on, on, on college campuses and, and not allow it to be as biased. I think as it is so the, diversity in all things, except ideology, right? You, you will, you can talk about diversity, in almost anything at any university other than ideology. No one wants to talk about that. Um, and I think it should be talked about. Um, and then how do we get this, social media incivility vortex to power down because I don't see it getting better. I, I see the most successful way I've seen people navigate it is they've just unplugged from Facebook and just, they've said it, I'm much less miserable now that I've unplugged from Facebook. And I'm like, okay, now you're also disconnected from a lot of things that you valued. Okay, but you made that choice. I would just rather see, and I'm, again, not quite sure how to do it because, again, the I don't think there's enough government regulation that would actually pull it off. There's probably there's some some clever people who proposed some clever things about how to how to program interfaces to sort of reward you know civil discussion and and to discourage posting really awful shitty things, right? Um, maybe that's a piece of it uh, because that that incivility, that lack of compromise, that that drive towards these insular, all-encompassing tribes that are just about judging the others as inferior. I'll be honest, that's what terrifies me. You want to, you want to tell me as a father with three children, what it, when I'm 80, fading out of my life, if I make it to 80, you know, 30 years from now, what is my biggest concern for my children's future? It's that this country has sort of given up on the core of what it was supposed to be about, which is this you know, governance of the people, by the people, for the people, and, and, and where we used to have this really robust civic life and, and we could be neighbors but still disagree at the ballot box and we could still have partisan politics but still 
recognize the humanity of all of our citizens. Every year that just seems to be, another layer seems to be stripped off of that until eventually we're going to get down to something so raw that it's just, you know, and this all or nothing, right? So all it's going to take is, you know, enough, a few more incidents of one thing or another, whether it's abortion or guns or whatever, and the group is going to get in some kind of policy thing where they, they, they push something too hard, too far, and then whichever group it is on the other side is going to feel like, well, our backs are to the wall and nothing, so now it's time for insurrection. And, and, and then we'll start having whatever, you know, like bombings and, and, and political unrest with you know, the start of sort of a civil war, right? And then there'll be this hidden kind of group, whether it's a left-wing groups that are bombing right or right-wing groups that are bombing left or both. Mm-hmm. And then does the, does the rule of law still apply? Do we, st- do we as a country stand up and say this is wrong? Or, or does whoever's in power kind of look the other way when one side does it to another? I, I just I look at all of it and I just think, oh, it's just every, every, everything down that road is awful and I just wish I could get people to slow down their marching down that road and look around and be like oh like this is a little harder of a path but this is where we should be right be willing to do the hard work and and actually get to know the other person and see that like okay well here's my neighbor they voted for Biden or they voted for Trump or they or they're pro-choice or they're pro-life and maybe I could try to understand like what are their experiences that make them so certain that that's correct mm-hmm. and, and do I understand them and can I understand them better and in understanding them better could I even understand my own position better right all of my you know I was when I was here at Michigan for the first time in the 80s I was simultaneously in the residential college which is about as left and as uh, sort of progressive and tie-dyed you know 60s you can get and I was in ROTC at the same time but boy what an education right you're you had if you had any flimsiness to your beliefs or your thoughts or you you know when you were when you had that level of polar disparity and it wasn't as bad as it is now but it's still those were that sense you know you really had to examine a lot and and my political thinking and my maturity really grew because i was in that split world and i just i just wish that for everybody because i really feel like that has given me that and then continuing that habit throughout my life and not getting into the stovepipe where all i feed myself is why the other side is bad and it becomes because i have friends who are consumed by this both on the left and the right and they they have this deep-seated antipathy and contempt and they just constantly post the nastiest most critical snarky insulting stuff and i'm like and this makes you feel good, and it means, and it makes all your little friends who are already on your side cheer. But all it does is make the other side think you're a ginormous asshole. And then I see my friends on the left doing the same thing, you know. And I sometimes I'll point out to this friend, you know, I'll point out, I'll be like, "This is a terrible me, right? This is the, the, it takes this initial fact, it plucks it out of context, and then you take this terrible generalization, this whole comic thing that you put up. Is it, you know, I know it makes you feel good because you're, you're radiating your but but you know, think how this makes everybody who is on the other side of the fence. This is just a horrible insult. Is your is your intent just to make? Is your feeling that your purpose in life is to put this on Facebook so that everybody who's not on your tribe can feel like you just dumped a bucket of, of cow poop on their head? This is this is how you choose to live your life? Because that taken to its farthest extreme is like it ends up as a civil war. I'm like, eh, not interested. So yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully, hopefully we don't go there, right? Yeah. I mean, hopefully things get better. I I have I'm hesitantly hopeful that things will. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that. There will be a, a rebound to cancel culture and that uh, 
we're starting to see the pushback a little. You know, you see some celebrities on the left or some politicians on the left slightly criticizing things yeah. here or there and saying yeah. that, you know, this isn't okay or this isn't okay. Whereas maybe a month ago they would have been decapitated in the town square for yeah. criticizing that same thing. Yeah. So I, I'm hesitantly hopeful that that pushback happens and that we are able to see people engaging in more of this civil discussion, this engaging with the other side, seeing both perspectives, yeah. not falling down these echo chambers. And yeah, because you're never going to, you know, I think that John Stuart Mill quote, like you're never going to, you're never going to know, no one can possess a full truth of any yeah. one thing, right? And it's only through sending your idea out there to collide with everybody else's ideas that you can ever hope to sort of improve yours, whether, whether your idea is 10% or 95% true it's still missing 5%. Mm -hmm. And unless you subject it to the pounding of all these other ideas, you're not going to, you're not going to get any further. Right. I always, my challenge, I always say, because people always like, Oh no, I understand politics. I'm like, well, I will believe you. If, if, if you tell me, if you're a pro-choice and you can argue pro-life so well that you could get a pro-choice person to try and attack you. Right. Or, or you could, you could be mistaken as a pro-life person um, for real. Then, then, and, and you could do it and still hold your own beliefs really firmly, then I would say, okay, I, I will respect your beliefs, right? But what I find for most people is that the ones that are the most passionate, they can't do that. They can All they can do is tell you why the people who don't hold their beliefs are evil, as opposed to being able to actually argue them from an empathic, sympathetic viewpoint. Um, and I think that's a problem, right? Because then you have no, you, you, you automatically then are seeing the other side as, as evil and that just leads to we're good. Yeah. yeah, no, we're going to, uh, at some point soon, I'd like to do an episode on logical fallacies and stuff and kind of just walk through some of the most common ones and then touch on steel manning arguments and, yeah. and, and things like that. Because it's important and not a lot of people have these tools either to, to right. engage in this way. Yeah. Um, and, and that's important, right? You can't, you can only engage so civilly if you don't quote unquote know the rules to logic and you're going to be in for sure accidentally insulting someone or yeah. accidentally generalizing or things huh. so so yeah i think that all of that will hopefully help more people be more amenable to some of these outside perspectives for sure but anyway i i really appreciate you coming on eric cool. um at the end of all of our interviews we usually give two opportunities then for the interviewee um the first just to drop any other plugs um that you want anything that you want the audience to be aware of um, we've had people plug different charities. We've had people plug their own podcasts, really, you know, whatever you feel like. And then any, and then one last opportunity to say what needs saying. So anything that you think we've touched on that maybe you wanted to go back to and, and cover mm. one last thing, or if you think we missed anything that you want to touch on before we close, yeah. um, or if you think we've, we've covered it all, then that's fine too. But just wanted to turn it over to you. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, I would, uh, I would say again, I mentioned it one time earlier, I really admire the work my students are doing with this, uh, this uh, newsletter called Civil. And so I think I, you probably would get it if you turned Civil civil Media Newsletter. Um, and, I, and I think they were doing civilmedia.io. We'll just see if I'm right on that one. Um, but again, you know, they've got a sort of a red and white logo. It's pretty obvious if you found the right place. Um, and um, the uh, the gentleman who's doing it is uh, Max uh, Tendero. He, he, um, I, just, I just love what he's doing. I just think, man, that's the, that's the spirit. And what he's doing is, I think, super helpful. And I think every, almost anybody who's interested in politics would benefit from it um, because of the way that they structure it, where it really illustrates what I was talking about with these two stovepipes. It helps you really see how it's being fed, you know, in parallel, but in two different flavors all the time. Um, 
And then uh, I guess my favorite charity, you know, I, I won't pump my own charities because they're pretty small and pretty well taken care of. And I, I just hand them somebody. There is one that uh, I'm particularly fond of here in uh, Michigan. There's a, a group called Fisher House. And so if you wanted to, uh, if you're looking for a good group to donate to, Fisher House Michigan is essentially the Ronald McDonald House for Veterans. So they build, uh, they build residences near the VA hospitals for the families of uh, sick and in some cases terminal veterans uh, to stay while their veterans are getting care um, and it's truly a wonderful uh, truly wonderful group so if you wanted to look up Fisher House Michigan they're awesome and uh, a very very worthy charity that I think is making Michigan a better place um, and then I think the one thing I'd return to is just the I just keep I'm gonna just keep howling this in the wilderness you know to see who listens but I just keep telling my students different is not the same as wrong which is not the same as evil and we have to get back to those are three completely separate wickets. Each one of them has its own requirements, right? You can note, right? You have a different opinion than me. You focus on different facts than me. Maybe one of your facts is wrong. Maybe all of your facts are wrong. Or maybe they only feel wrong to me because, I, right? Like everybody's certain about their facts, but are they, right? And then how many, and which facts are you focusing on? So, so it gets super complicated. Even just difference is, is hard enough to do. Then you can start trying to make sure that we at least, what facts are we focusing on and how are you interpreting them? That alone should suck up all our energy. We shouldn't even have the energy left to get to from wrong. If we even could get to wrong, even if I could show that factually, I think you're focusing on the wrong facts or you have a fact wrong, but that's only one of your facts. You still have plenty more, right? But then to jump from there to say you're evil because of these should be very slow, long leaps to make. And in my observation, we make that leap in some cases in as little as five seconds. Right. And that to me, that's in a nutshell. That's the problem. Different is not the same as wrong, which is not the same as evil. And if everybody could just slow the down and understand that when you jump to that evil and start assuming someone's evil for what they believe or the facts they're choosing to focus on you are literally that is the you open that box that is the end of everything what comes out of that box is the end of everything historically it's it's absolutely clear and that should terrify people and it clearly doesn't and so i'm just going to keep yowling this in the wilderness and hopefully people will listen i don't know i think it's it's worth considering yeah well i appreciate the perspective and i couldn't agree more um yeah. I, people definitely need to focus on the differences not jump to these evil, you know, we, we talked on it, about it a lot during this interview, about justifying everything because your person is evil and, and wrong, and yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So I think that's just as good a place as any to cut it. Cool. I, I really appreciate you coming by, Eric. Thanks awesome. so much again. Yeah, my pleasure. This is a great first in-person interview, and we'll have to have you on the show again at some point. You can I talk like to that. Brandon. Brandon's got a little bit different perspective than I do on some, some things, and so I'm cool. sure you and him could have a great conversation too. But, yeah, everything else went really well. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm happy to have you on. Thanks, but man. everyone else, um, thank you for watching, and... If you're listening to the audio right now, check out the video on YouTube, and hopefully by now, I'm going to keep saying this at the end of our episodes because we're getting really close, but check out saywhatneedsaying.com. Hopefully it's up by then. If not, check back in a week, and if not, check back in another week. But check out the video, um, and let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about these topics, and follow us on social media. We are Say What Needs Saying on Facebook and Instagram, Say What Needs on Twitter, and yeah. 
thank you all for listening in. <laughs>